You may open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, which we will be looking at chapter 5 this morning. For our visitors, we will admit that our services are long, but we will not apologize. We believe that most of you are able to sit for three and a half hours for the average college football game or professional football game which is nothing but a bunch of idiots running back and forth with a weirdly shaped ball. Or you can sit and watch some pagan, perverse, profane movie put forth by Hollywood that presents a gospel entirely against the Bible. And you can watch it for two hours or three hours or watch two in a row for three hours or four hours or five hours. So all we're doing is spending a little bit of time meeting the Lord Out of the 168 hours that he gives us in a week. That's a lot of time. And so we give him a little. We admit that uh, there's been more Bible used in the last hour and 15 minutes than you get in most churches in a month. Most contemporary churches in a year. And we don't apologize for that. We're not special because of it. God is special because of it. It's his precious word and we're so thankful for it. We're thankful that for near 400 years, God has blessed the King James Bible in the pulpits of Bible-believing churches. They are His inspired words, and we believe they're His preserved words. We're thankful for these words. Those men that have read Scriptures today have read Scriptures to remind us of the preparation that ought to go in to the worship of God. We had read to us Exodus chapter 19, which told us that Moses commanded the people to sanctify themselves. That means to make yourself holy for three days before they could meet the Lord. We do not want any in our midst. And if they're in our midst, and there will be some at all times, belly worshipers, as the Bible calls them, they get up in the morning and think that they can just jump in a car and drive off to church and walk in here. God thinks that they're fools, God has no pleasure in them, and God will curse all the work of their hands. We know it because the Bible tells us, we know it because we've seen it happen. But the Bible told Moses to tell the people, God told Moses to tell the people to prepare themselves for three days, which they did. They washed their clothes, they sanctified themselves, they didn't come at their wives for three days. They they forewent the marriage bed for three days. You say, that's really weird. Well, it's in the New Testament too, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5, where the apostle said that a husband and a wife, for the purposes of prayer and fasting, might forego ordinary marital sex in order to make their way into the presence of God by prayer and fasting. It's in both Testaments. Because it was very serious to approach to that mount and meet with God, and I hope you gathered that from the words that were read from Exodus 19. Then we had read to us 1 Kings chapter 8 about Solomon dedicating that temple. What an impressive ceremony that was. Impressive not because of his words so much as because of God's presence there in the temple. The priests couldn't enter the temple to to worship and to serve because the glory of the Lord had filled the place. And when the glory of the Lord is in a place, it is an intimidating, overwhelming presence of God. We have a religion on the earth today that claims a billion followers named Islam, and they get down on their little magic rugs and pray toward Mecca. 
They stole that idea 1,600 years after Solomon made the prayer of 1 Kings chapter 8. Because the Jews were to pray toward Jerusalem if they were in captivity or if they were in trouble and God would hear their prayers because His presence was going to be in that temple in Jerusalem. That is why Daniel, when he was a captive in Babylon, several hundred miles away, would open his window and pray toward Jerusalem, as he had at other times after the king of Persia had ruled against such prayers to be made. But our God is in heaven, so we pray toward heaven. And we have done that since Jerusalem was wiped from the face of the earth as the place of God's abode. He left that temple. That first one was destroyed. A second one was built. And he left that one as well. He said, your house is left unto you desolate because I'm no longer in it. He's in heaven. And then we had read to us Revelation chapter 4 that describes God in heaven. And worthy is that God to receive all our blessing and honor and glory and power and everything that we can give him. Because he has created you for his pleasure. He didn't create you for your pleasure. He didn't create you for anything else but His pleasure. And He is worthy to be praised and to receive glory and honor. And Brother Red, thank you for Psalm 18. You want to hear the difficult assignment that he was given? Pick a few favorite verses from Psalm 50 and comment on them. There's 50 wonderful verses in Psalm 18. But he did an excellent job showing you the God of David. The Lord liveth. Excellent comparison to Diana of the Ephesians. Ephesians, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We are in the book of philosophy of the Bible. Philosophy is the study of the purpose of man. The Bible has a book of philosophy, except if you were to pull it from your Bible, it would only be a few pages long, and you don't need a thousand or a twelve hundred page text written by some dope-smoking pagan in one of our schools of higher education, you need the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank God for saving us from the philosophers of Athens, Greece, and thank God for saving us from the religionists of Ephesus, Turkey. We've been saved from both. And we have deliverance here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is proving that everything under the sun is vanity and vexation of spirit. All is vanity. He opens the book that way, he ends the book that way. The things in your life under the sun, if you put your heart on them, are vanity and they're going to let you down. You're going to leave them all anyway. They're not going to help you in the hour of death or in the day of wrath. They're of no value except to keep you alive. But if you put your heart on them, you've stepped across the bounds And you've entered into vanity, and God is going to show you that there's no trust in the things of life. We come to chapter 5. We have five lessons in this chapter. We're going to deal with just the first two by the grace of God. We have lifted up the God of heaven. And we need Him lifted up for the first two lessons in this chapter. Number one, when we come into the house of God, we better come prepared. We better come sober. And we better come with our lips guarded. Because we do not want to open our mouths foolishly, hastily, or excessively in the presence of God. Because He's in heaven. We're on earth. Our words should be few. 
Because He will judge us for anything we say that we shouldn't have said. He will judge us for anything we say that we don't perform. And that's the word of the Lord. The second reason we had those passages read is because verse 8 gives us a rule for reading our newspapers and listening to the news. If you waste any of your time doing that. And that is, there's a God in heaven that rules over all the provinces, states, nations, and conglomerations of nations in the earth. There, and He is higher than their highest. And we do not need to worry about the storms, the political storms, the economic storms, or financial storms that we see on the horizon, because there's a God in heaven that with the word of His mouth changes the affairs of nations. Amen. And that's a great comfort. I was a little boy in the 60s, and I was taught a great deal of fear, because in the 60s it looked like America as we knew it might be overthrown. We had long-haired, effeminate hippies everywhere. We had white panthers and black panthers distributing literature in the high schools in the part of the country I was raised, Michigan, near the University of Michigan. If you're near one of the universities of our nation, you're going to be near one of the most corrupt places in the country because they attract those people. They have set their minds to educate themselves against the knowledge of God, and therefore that's where sin gravitates. I was raised in a time when Detroit was burning to the ground in various sections of it, and so was it was happening in Newark, New Jersey, in Watts, California, a suburb of L.A., there were demonstrators everywhere that wanted to make fun of our soldier boys coming home from Vietnam. I was taught the right approach to those guys. The army ought to roll in the streets and ports where those soldiers were received and grind those fools under their treads. We saw the silver taken out of our coinage by one president. We saw the international gold bullion exchange window closed by another president. We saw lots of things happening and it looked like many storms that were going to blow on the United States of America. Jack Van Empey was prophesying with all his might. He's not a prophet, so you know what this is going to amount to. He was prophesying with all his might in the 1970s that in 1976, on the 4th of July... The communists would take over America. Now, I had heard that before by another evangelist that had come from Korea that told a seven-year-old boy, me, in 1964, that the communists would take over America in 1967. And I'd only be ten years old. I wouldn't be old enough to drive or man my own machine gun. I slept with knives and guns. I have scars from one of those knives. On my hand, for it was under my pillow. But I want to tell you today that verse 8 is going to give us an answer to all of that. There's a God in heaven. The Lord liveth. And we want to remember that no matter what we read. So we have two lessons. Number one, when we come into the house of God, we better come sober and we better guard our lips. Number two, there's a God in heaven that should deliver us from all fear of what men are doing on earth. Let me read the first seven verses to you for the first lesson. 
This is the book of Ecclesiastes, which means the preacher, written by King Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem over all Israel, the wisest and richest king God raised up for the express purpose of writing about things that we will not have the privilege of experimenting with ourselves, which he did for us to show that life is vain without setting your affection above the sun into heaven itself. Ecclesiastes 5, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow then that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also divers vanities. But fear thou God. That's why we read all those passages of Scripture, that we would fear God and keep our foot and keep our mouths when we come into His house. I have very much material that would take much longer than I have for our day's worship today, but I trust that what we've done so far has been to the profit of your souls as well. But hear me for a few minutes on this first lesson. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. And the sacrifice of fools is laid out for us in the next six verses. And that sacrifice is to open your mouth and promise things to God and say things to God that you are unwilling to perform when it comes time to pay. We don't want to go to church and open our mouths without preparation. So it says, keep thy foot. That means slow down. That is a metaphor. Slow down. Keep your foot. Don't you go hastily into church. The worship of God under both testaments is very sober and serious. You have had read to you and quoted to you already Hebrews chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul would say in the New Testament, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence. And godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Paul quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 24 when he said that. Our God is a consuming fire. There are so many that say today the God of the New Testament is very different from the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament was just a mean and dreadful and terrible. That is the God of the New Testament. That's why he quoted Deuteronomy 4.24 for you in Hebrews 12.29. 
God hasn't changed. I thought the Bible says He's the same yesterday and today and forever. Haven't you looked into Revelation chapter 20 and seen Him casting men into the lake of fire? You think that's the new God of the New Testament? That's the God of the Old Testament. Both Testaments require us to come soberly before this great and dreadful God. He happens to be our Father and loves us through Jesus Christ, and we never forget that. But when we worship Him, He wants it to be done acceptably with reverence and godly fear. These billboards outside churches that say, come as you are. And you go inside and you see a bunch of teeny boppers in their flip-flops, tank tops and shorts. No one brought a Bible. And all they do is sing one verse seven times to some little jingle. 7-Eleven music. Eleven words sung seven times. Now all of you, I hope you'll remember that I've just introduced one of our guests. One of our favorite expressions. That we've heard. We'd rather sing a song with 11 verses and 70 words per verse. I appreciate all those of you who comforted me a few weeks ago when we sang about 14 verses to the, the hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. This is the house of God of the New Testament. When we come into this house, we should come prepared. We should come on time. We should come ready. We should come with our sins confessed. We should come with our hearts prepared for spiritual things. We should be ready to hear rather than to speak. The Lord Jesus Christ said when He was on earth, Take heed therefore how ye hear. For to him that hath shall be given more. But to him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he thinketh he hath. That's Luke 18, Luke 8 and verse 18. And that's a warning from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to come ready to hear. You know, the Bible tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only in James chapter 1. But before we even get that far, we are to come ready to hear. I want to learn. Lord, teach me. Lord, bless every man that gets in that pulpit that I can learn from your word, your perfect will for my life. Keep your foot. Slow down. Don't just get out of bed, stumble to the closet, grab a shirt and tie, Race out to the car, drive here, get here in the last five minutes, or get here at the midnight hour, drop into your seat, impatient, upset, irritated, angry, not prepared. You can make the choice to do that. We'll give you the choice. This has told me what the outcome is going to be for your life. I promise you this. I guarantee it to you. And we see it. God blows on all your efforts. And He'll continue to do so until you put Him first in your life. When you will humble yourself and prepare for the worship of God, showing that the God Jehovah is someone special that deserves our care in His worship, then He will bless you. You would not treat even men with authority in this world that way, and yet you treat the God of heaven that way. It's terrible. You don't go to an interview as you, just as you are. When was the last time somebody went for a profession, uh, uh, an interview for a professional position in their flip-flops, shorts, and a tank top? We make that distinction for men of this world that hardly deserve that effort at respect. 
But how about the God of heaven? Verse 2, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. There's two words there we want, rash and hasty. Don't be quick to open your mouth. Don't be quick to open your mouth to volunteer to pray. Don't be quick to sing some of the songs that we've sung already today, in which songs you took the Lord's name in your mouth and said that you would do certain things. You've already done it. Are you prepared to live up to those statements? Because you knew we were going to sing songs like that, even if you were so profane as not to open your mouth, you're still held just as accountable. Because you're here in a church that believes those things and is practicing them and saying them. If you're not going to commit, then you shouldn't be here. When we sing loudly and we aren't going to live up to the words that we sing, we're hypocrites. And the judgment of God is upon us. We're being rash and we're being hasty. Don't you read a psalm with the rest of the congregation because that's opening your mouth about anything in the house of God without being ready to live up to it. If you give a thanksgiving or make a prayer request for God's deliverance, then you better live like there's a God in heaven that can deliver you. For God is in heaven, that second verse tells us, and thou upon earth. You're supposed to get something from that. God is in heaven. He is the creator of the universe, and we are upon earth, and when we are compared to grasshoppers, we come up inferior. When we're compared to the dust of the scales of God's balance, we come up inferior. Men all together, rich and poor alike, gathered together, are all together lighter than vanity, is what the Bible says. I believe that Psalm 62, about verse 9. The rich and the poor gathered together, all mankind packed together, and put on the scales of God's balance of value... We go up because vanity, which is nothing, is heavier than us. He's in heaven. We're on earth. Therefore, we cannot be rash or hasty. Therefore, let thy words be few. Let us not promise things to God. Let us not open our mouths in his worship unless we're going to live accordingly. We're not forcing you to be here. If you don't want to be here, if you don't want to worship this God, go find other churches. There's so many in our county that let you worship any way you want. You won't be held accountable for anything. You can run the light show in the back. You can sit there and plug in different machines. They'll give you a ministry because they don't care about the worship of God. They just want to see if they can make unregenerate people happy in order to build their audience. Therefore, let thy words be few. Verse 3, for a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. If you are engaged in a lot of business, a lot of mental business, this is not manual labor. Because we're going to read in just a few verses in the second assembly that manual labor will help you sleep. But this is mental business. And when you're lying in your bed, your dreams are going to be many because you've got too much business going on in your life. Solomon just threw that in for no charge. A dream cometh through the multitude of business. If you've got a whole lot of things that you're worried and concerned about mentally, you're going to think about those things even while you're asleep, and it's going to cause you lots of dreams. But his real point is the second half of that comparison. A fool's... He's going to come back to dreams in a minute. Because a fool's words and dreams both have the same value. They're worthless. 
And a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. When, when a person comes into the house of God and just yap, yaps, yaps, but doesn't have a, a, a life that backs it up, that's a fool's voice, and it's known by his multitude of words. Wise people know to be careful before they make vows to God. Wise people know how to prepare before they say anything before the Lord's people or before they would say anything before the Lord himself. One way you can always tell a fool is just listen to who's talking longest and loudest. It's such a dead giveaway. You know, there's verses that say if a fool would just shut his mouth, people would esteem him to be wise. But he cannot because there's a fire burning there. He's got to give his opinion. And it's worthless. How do you know it's worthless? Because anybody that gives their opinion very often, it's worthless. A wise man holds it in till afterward. That's what the Bible says. So let us guard our speech, but especially in the house of God, because that's the context. Verse 4, when thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. Don't you put off the payment of a vow that you've made to him, for he hath no pleasure in fools. And this is what he means by a fool in this passage. It's someone who takes the worship of God casually. And when I see signs about casual worship, it makes me sick. There is no such thing in the word of God. It's a casual approach to the worship of God that's being condemned right here. When thou vowest to vow to God, defer not to pay it. He hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. If you have ever been in trouble and you promised God that you would do a certain thing for him, if he would deliver you, you should remember that vow and pay it. Don't put off the payment of it. If you've been blessed abundantly and you've promised God that you will do such and so because of God's blessing on you, then you better do it. Otherwise, you're a fool in this context and God is against you and it will show up in the rest of your life. Verse 5, better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. The vows that are under consideration here in Ecclesiastes 5 are free will and voluntary offerings and sacrifices and vows. They're vows like Hannah made. No one required the vow from Hannah that if God would give her a son, she had to give him back to the Lord, give him away. For the rest of his life, after he was weaned. God didn't require that of her. She chose to give that to the Lord. Did she pay her vow? Was she blessed in her life? Yes. She had five more children after Samuel. And Samuel was the greatest man in Israel of that generation. And Samuel is one of five, is one of God's five favorite men that are given to us in Jeremiah 15 and Ezekiel 14. She was blessed abundantly because she paid her vow. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow. God doesn't require vows of you. You don't have to impress God with vows. So when you vow, make sure you pay. That's the lesson here. What's this in the middle of a book of philosophy for? What are verses like this? Because Solomon is teaching about vanity and wasting your life. And he has observed in his life a lot of foolish words coming out of people's mouths in the name of religion. So he's trying to save you. He is trying to find the profit for your life. And he realizes that there are men that work very hard and work very smart, and that God blesses with many ordinary natural blessings, but they lose the profit of all that because they open their mouths hastily in the house of God. 
Why should he destroy the work of thine hands? He's going to tell you that in verse 6. But that's one of the reasons why it's here. I want to say another thing about Ecclesiastes. If, if you ever hear someone tell you that Solomon was writing as a backslidden, idol-worshipping Epicurean, you're wrong. Right. He wouldn't have this section in here. He's writing as a God-fearing man that the Lord set up to test everything under the sun to tell you that it's all worthless. Right. It's, what a, it's a great blessing. None of us in here and all of us combined together will never be able to try the things that Solomon tried. And if you're doubting that for a minute because you think you've achieved some level of success, remember he had a thousand wives. Your wife isn't going to be happy with number two. Verse six. Suffer not thy mouth. The word suffer in a context and use like this means don't permit, don't allow. Suffer not your mouth. Don't allow your mouth to cause your flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? We've got two things, two sins in this verse. The first sin is for you to be hasty with your mouth and open it when you shouldn't have and promise things. The second sin is that after you've promised it, when it comes time to pay, you excuse yourself from not paying. And you justify yourself saying, oh, it was a mistake what I said back then. So there's two errors here. The first error is opening your mouth in the first place hastily. The second error is trying to justify yourself by not paying and saying it was a mistake. It was an error. I didn't mean to do that. For those of you that are wondering about the angel, it doesn't really matter. It could be an angel in the sense of a Levite, a priest, or a judge. And there's lots of things to be said on both sides, but I don't want to distract you, nor am I going to say it right now. Because the Bible can use the word that way, and that's how some commentators run it. Or it can be a literal angel. It's a singular angel, so you've got to be careful with that. Then it's a collective noun standing in for angels in the same sense that Paul warns the church at Corinth by telling them the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, 1 Corinthians 11.10, and why should she have that symbol of authority on her head? Because of the angels. Because angels recognize authority and hierarchy and ranks far better than men do. The Bible tells us that they're called angels and principalities and powers, thrones, might, and dominion. Because they have different levels of might, dominion, throne, and jurisdiction. They recognize their authority. That angels themselves will not rebuke the devil. They know his position that he once had over them. And all they say is, the Lord rebuke thee. They recognize authority. And angels are around us at all times. So we want to be careful in the way we conduct ourselves because angels witness what we do and they report to heaven. Have you heard these words? Satan, where have you been? I've been walking to and fro in the earth. What have you been doing down there? Just checking around on men. What do you think of my servant Job? I think that the only reason he fears you is because you've put a hedge about him and you won't let me get at him. If you were to take that hedge away and let me get at him, he'd curse you to your face. Those are the kind of conversations the Bible describes go on in heaven. Right. Enough about that, because you know what? The whole point is not so much the angel. The point is 
God is going to be angry with your voice. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Don't let your mouth, by hastily saying anything in the house of God, get you in trouble when it comes time for your body to pay it. You know, Hannah said something pretty bold. She had never had a child before. She had never given birth before. And she had never nursed a baby before. It was easy. It was easy to say what she promised before she had that baby. After she had Samuel and nursed that baby for a good while, then it was going to be harder for her to perform. Her mouth had said something that her flesh was now going to balk against. But her spirit was strong enough that even after she had nursed Samuel, she was able to take him and give him to the Lord. She paid. Her flesh performed her vow. The second half of verse 6 is, Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice if you ever say you made a mistake and you intend not to keep a vow you've made to God in his worship? Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice? He will be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands. Have you been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ at any point in your life? Have you ever been baptized? I will take a gamble here that no matter how frivolous baptisms are done today, most of you were baptized with the understanding and the commitment based on your profession of faith that you were going to live for the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of your life. That is a vow we all made. Are you living up to it? Wherefore should God be angry with thy voice? If you're not living up to your baptism, then you're a blasphemer. You're a rebel. We gotta make this passage practical. We can't just stick it back in Israel 2,000 years ago. We've gotta ask ourselves, when have I opened my mouth and have I lived up to what I've said in the house of God? Right. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? This is why it's here. Because no matter how hard you work, and no matter how much travail you put forth into your business or into your job, if you are not living for the Lord, the Bible tells us this, all He has to do is blow against you, and your efforts will come to nothing. The Bible says when He blows against you, you put your wages into a bag that has holes in it and it dribbles out of the ground. The Bible says when He blows against you and you go to some place, whether it's an investment account or whether it is your vineyard, you are going to look for 20 vats and you're going to get 10. Because he's blowing against you. Why should he destroy the work of thine hands? So it's in the book of Proverbs to remind us, the book of Ecclesiastes, excuse me, it's in the book of Ecclesiastes to remind us, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Do you want to find profit in your life? Do you want to find any measure of success? Then the Lord must be first. The Lord must be first. And if you put him first, it's the greatest joy, joyful, wonderful thing you've ever done. Verse 7, for in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also divers vanities. Here he compares dreams and words. In a multitude of dreams, when you have many dreams, most of those dreams, a lot of those dreams are pure folly, foolishness and fantasies. And so are a bunch of words. And so the warning here is dreams and words are just alike. When there's a bunch of them, there's divers vanities. There's all kinds and many different kinds of vanities. Empty, worthless, profitless things. But fear thou God. Fear thou God. And that fear is not a terrifying fear. We don't have Mount Sinai that we have to stand back from because there's a velvet rope there. 
that if we pass that velvet rope, we're going to be shot through with darts. That's what the Bible says. We don't have a God like that. We can come boldly into his presence through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But while we're coming boldly, we are to come reverently, soberly and carefully. We're to keep our foot when we go to the house of God. We're to keep our mouths. We're not to utter things rashly or hastily. Pay your vows. Every one of you that has been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, are you a sold out, on fire, loving, worshiping, serving, dedicated, committed, self-denying, sacrificing disciple of Jesus Christ? Or are you just a professor? God has heard your voice. God will hold you accountable. Keep thy foot and keep thy mouth. Fear thou God. The second lesson in verse 8. Look at verse 8. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Part of philosophy is the study of human relations and how we should view them and what role man has in the universe and why things happen the way they happen and what is the purpose and profit of them. One of the things that people wonder about is evil in the world that comes from governments. Because there are terrible things that are done by governments. Zedong or Mao Zedong killed 20 to 40, 60 million of his countrymen with his experiments in agriculture. Some of these things I've mentioned to you before. There were the purges of Russia under Joseph Stalin. And we could go on and on. The last century. You know, people say that with education and modern man, he's much gentler than in the past. And yet when we look at what's happened in the last century, we see possibly more men killed for unjust purposes and a, per, and a violent perverting of justice and judgment than any other century in the history of mankind. First of all, there weren't so many men on earth as there was in the last century. But when you see all that, there's an answer for it. God's in charge. The Lord reigneth. The Lord liveth. Whatever expression from the Bible comforts you, learn it, say it, trust it, believe it, and quote it. Whenever you need to, when someone's trying to disturb you with storm clouds on the horizon. A storm cloud on the horizon, there's nothing that you can do about it. There's no congressman that you can write that's going to move it in the least bit. Your greatest trust needs to be on your knees begging the God of heaven to preserve us. That's why the Bible says pray for our rulers. Even, even the ruler that we're going to get in a few months. Which the choice is just terrible to even think about. But we're going to pray for them. And we're going to trust God to deliver us through them. God told Paul to tell Timothy to pray for the rulers in Rome. How about that oppressive, profane, pagan empire that was ruling over the nation of Israel? They had had their liberties taken away in a, to a great extent. They had their soldiers in every major city. They had outposts and forts built there. What do you think Caesarea was named after? Caesar's town. Caesar's city. But yet, Paul said, pray for them. Right. When Israel was captive in Babylon, Jeremiah and Isaiah told them to pray for the peace of Babylon. Because in her peace, you'll have peace. We trust the God of heaven that moves nations. 
This text is one of the most needful ones we need, we have in the Bible, in the book of Ecclesiastes, for dealing with political uncertainty and political fear and economic fear and violence in laws legislated and by criminals, whether they're legal or not. This is a verse that can give us comfort. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province. At the time this was written, the world had known and would yet know several world empires that would be built upon many provinces. The book of Esther tells us that the Persian Empire had 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. Whether your history book told you that or not, we don't care. That's because your history book can't find documents as old as the Bible. But the Bible says that there were 127 provinces. And those provinces were little sub-states set up by some foreign king who had whipped you with his army and had put a deputy there, a president, a deputy, a sheriff. These are all terms from the Bible. Had put that person there and far removed from the king, you were a beaten people. He had the authority of the empire's army behind him. He could take advantage of the laws in that province and arrest them. And so when men would look at that, how can men do such cruel things as to kill people? How could Herod do what he did about the babies near Bethlehem? You have never seen authority like the authority of the Roman Empire. Herod wasn't much of a king. His territory wasn't much bigger than the upstate of South Carolina. He was an appointed Edomite over a little section of the Roman Empire called Palestine, and only part of Palestine. He was an appointed king of the Jews, but he could say, kill every baby two years of age and under. And it happened. And when you saw things like that, there is within the spirit of man despair. That's why it says, marvel not. Don't be overwhelmed by the matter, because there's a God in charge. What was God doing by allowing that bloodbath of little children and the mothers of that section of Israel crying out in grief? He was fulfilling scripture, and he wasn't giving Israel anything that they didn't already deserve. Do you know that that nation had already fed their babies to false gods? What was the difference if Herod took a few more? Don't you ever blame God and don't you ever marvel at the matter. There's a God in charge. I've told you before that the First and the Second World War and the devastation that they brought upon Europe and especially the nation of Germany is most fitting for the trash that came out of Germany in the 19th century. They had more God-denying, blaspheming pagans writing philosophy and theology than any other nation on earth. So it doesn't surprise me. Sometimes we can see an explanation, one of a trillion. We have a God in heaven that keeps track of a trillion while we try to figure out one. And we can't even know with certainty if that one is true unless the Bible tells us. But sometimes we can see some things. Most of the time we can't see anything, but we trust the Lord. It says, marvel not at the oppression of government. We see things taking place that make us sick. We see same-sex marriages being defended by our government, while at the same time that government is killing unborn babies while still in the womb of their mothers. While at the same time they want to protect little animals that are running to excess when someone shoots them. 
incredible confusion and it's resting of judgment and justice. We shouldn't marvel at the matter. God's giving us what we deserve for the educational model that we've had for the last hundred years and the turning on God, the turnings are turning our back on God that this nation has engaged in. So we're getting what we deserve. We shouldn't marvel at the matter. If thou seest, when we from a philosophical standpoint look at the world and see on the other side of the world some terrible government atrocity, or we look in our own nation and see the resting of judgment, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth. Who is the highest? Is it Hugh of China? He ain't very high. Taiwan could still whip them. Is it President Bush? Who's the highest? You say, no, I don't believe any of that. I believe that there's a conspiracy that takes place that sits in London once a year where the Rothschilds get together, worship the devil, and President Bush reports to them, okay, let's take your fantasy and deal with it for just a second. Is that the highest authority that you know of on earth? The, the Illuminati? The United Nations? The Brotherhood of Freemasons? Who's your highest authority that you want to think controls the world? Because I just taught you something from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5 and verse 8. There is higher than the highest. And I don't care who you make the highest. Now let's get real high. Let's get real high. Let's get as high as the Prince of Grecia and the Prince of Persia, as mentioned in Daniel chapter 10. And now we're dealing with devilish spirits sent from the devil himself that manipulate government heads of state. That is Daniel chapter 10, verses 19 and verses 23. Now we've got someone higher than anyone on earth. Spiritual wickedness in high places. He's higher than the highest. Amen. Let me tell you about the devil. When he wants to go into a pig, he's got to beg for permission. Right. Don't you remember? Amen. What position were they in? When they were begging to go into the pigs. Come on, brethren. Weren't they on the deck worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. The Gadarene was filled with a thousand devils. Jesus said, what is your name? They said, we are legion. There are many of us. They were on the deck. We know who thou art. Thou art the Son of God. Art thou come to torment us before our time? Now, are you going to be afraid of someone talking like that? Could we please go into those pigs? Okay, I'll let you go into those pigs. And of course, they ran down a steep place and choked themselves in the sea. Could they touch Job without the Lord's permission? No. They could not touch Job without the Lord's permission. When the Lord gave them permission, when the Lord gave Satan himself permission, he said, you may go this far and no further. Right. Pick whoever you think is the highest. I'm not a conspiratorialist. I don't think that men on earth are unselfish enough to ever get together into any conspiracy that works. The conspiracy I do believe in is the devil's conspiracy against the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And then it's the ignorance of men and their selfishness that he manipulates in order to try to bring about an overthrow of the worship of Jesus Christ. And we fight that battle by coming into this place and rearming ourselves in the fear of God and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And we show that we are his citizens of his kingdom whenever we see the storm clouds rising on the horizon and we say... He that is higher than the highest is in charge. That is how we show our loyalty. We don't get fearful because we've got a great king that will defend us. 
and there be higher than they. No government on earth can stand against the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules the nations of this world with a rod of iron, breaking them into pieces as any geopolitical map of the world should show you. If you were to, how many nations have gathered in China for the Olympiad? Are we over 300? It used to be world empires. What happened to the world empires? Smashed to pieces. No one's been able to put a world empire together. Because the Lord Jesus Christ reigns. And we can put our trust in Him. Ask Haman what happened when all of Shushan, the capital of the Persian Empire, was in an uproar. When an edict had been passed that all the Jews could be killed on a certain date. Haman got that law passed. And Haman dangled in the breeze after he was hung by the judgment of God. Ask Pharaoh what happened when God heard the sighing of the Israelites for the hard bondage that the Egyptians had put upon them. His nation was plundered, destroyed, and he was drowned in the Red Sea. That is where we put our trust. Amen. What about when Daniel was cast into the lion's den? There was a violent perverting of justice and judgment in a province, in the capital province. What happened? God delivered Daniel and threw his tormentors and their families into that lion's den, and not one of them hit the bottom before every bone in their bodies was broken. That is the God of the heaven. That is the God of heaven and the God of the Bible and the God we trust and worship. No one is going to get away with corrupting justice on earth. And so we put our trust in him. Ask Ahab and Jezebel what happened because they stole the vineyard of a man named Naboth and then lied about him in court. How did Jezebel die? She was thrown down from a third-story window. Jehu rode his horse over her, trampling her under the hooves of his horse. And then while he was in eating, dogs came and ate every bit of her except the palms of her hands and her skull. How did Ahab die? He said, God ain't going to get me. I'm going to disguise myself and go into battle. No one will know I'm the king. So a man flung an arrow at a chance. First Kings chapter 22. Second Chronicles will tell you the same thing. And that chance arrow found a joint in his armor and he died that day. Right. We want to pray for our rulers and we want to pay our rulers and we want to obey our rulers. That is what the Bible teaches. That may not be comfortable with your flesh. It may be hard for you to pray for some of our rulers. And depending on what president we get in a few months, it may be a little harder. If it can get any harder. But we pray for our rulers and we pay our rulers because the Bible tells us to do both. And we obey our rulers. And we don't marvel at the matter because the Lord liveth. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Fear thou God. Amen.